So Charles, before we begin today, I'd like to briefly explain a little sweepstakes opportunity for our listeners. So in preparation for a Patreon bonus episode, uh, that's right, we have Patreon bonus episodes. If you're not familiar, go check us out at patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. Well, preparing for one of those episodes, we ordered the Northern Exposure Cookbook. That's right. Northern Exposure has a cookbook, a officially sanctioned cookbook for all the recipes that have appeared throughout the series right there. So, for example, we have recipes like the famous moose burger, Adam's Lamb Stew, or the Bricks Kick-Ass Chili. And all of them have a lead-up and a quotation that fits the recipe. So, for example, for the Bricks Kick-Ass Chili, which premiered in Dateline Sicily, it says... In return for Chris's loaning him some much-needed money, Hauling makes Chris a partner in the brick. Unfortunately, this causes the normally philosophical DJ to start obsessing about things like coasters and the bottom line. Chris says, All I'm saying is that Leon's Roadhouse in Sweetwater charges $3.50 for a bowl of chili half this size, and theirs comes out of a can. Yeah, I was just expecting like sort of a corny thrown-together cookbook, but... Every recipe really does have its place in the show, even if it's just like a throwaway line. It's kind of cool how they reconnect it back and how it's so well cataloged. Um, But here's the deal. So when we ordered the cookbook, there was like that whole freeze that happened in the United States. So it was lost in the mail. I ordered a second one and then, you know, it finally came in. And then a couple days after that, the original one came in. So I have two of these cookbooks. We don't need this extra one. So we'd like to give it away to one of our listeners. And here's how the sweepstakes will work. If you go onto our Facebook page or our Twitter page, you'll find a post from February 28th, Sunday night, where you can retweet if you're on Twitter or share if you're on Facebook that post with how you would describe Northern Exposure to someone who has never seen it. It's kind of like the concept of this podcast, but take that post, retweet it, share it, Uh, with sort of your pitch for the show. That's right. We're going to take one random retweeter or reposter on Facebook, and we're going to mail you the extra cookbook. So go find that post and retweet or share, and you can get this cookbook mailed to you for free. Well, Charles, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, let's start it. Let me ask you something. If you went to the trouble to organize someone's vacation, right, to, to ensure that it was safe and enjoyable and worry-free, I, I mean, is it unreasonable to expect a phone call? A, a simple, I've arrived, everything's fine, thank you. I, I mean, is that too much to ask? Marilyn hasn't called yet. No, she hasn't. I mean, here, I, I book her into a nice hotel with a 24-hour doorman, and the desk tells me that she hasn't even checked in. Maybe her plane was late. So we know why Marilyn hasn't called Joel. It's because he's sort of trying to chaperone and plan her trip, her vacation for her. Maybe she finds that a little annoying. But I also kind of find it hard to believe that no one is like slightly suspecting that Marilyn maybe got abducted or something bad could have happened, except for Joel. Right. Also, I I just think it's common courtesy to check up on friends and families that are concerned with you. Like, I I don't think it's that... 
I don't think that it interferes too much with your vacation just to give like a simple phone call. But then again, we're speaking in the year 2021 where we have text messages. So it's like a <laughs> lot easier for us to communicate something very quickly. Whereas for Marilyn, she might have had to find a pay phone and have to go through like a whole ordeal to get a message across. But uh, still, I, I find it kind of rude on her part, even though I understand what the episode is about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can understand it. I can like write it off that Marilyn is just trying to like stick one to Joel for, for like trying to um, commandeer her vacation and try to like, you know, guide her through like how to have a proper vacation and how to be safe. And, you know, she doesn't need that. And then I guess just the everyone in town, maybe Sicilians are the kind of people to think, oh, you're going to be fine in Seattle. Like there's nothing to worry about. Okay, Charles. So what are we talking about? All right. So what we're talking about is Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS television sitcom series. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. Hi, Charles. That's right. My name is Lee, and I'm a fan of the show. I've seen it a couple times. And Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. We're in season four. So you're a bit of a veteran yourself. I mean, I feel like, how many episodes is this? Let's see. This is the 54th episode of Northern Exposure. So, yeah, that's like, you know, it's four seasons worth. I guess if you're like on a on another show, it might be just two and a half. Yeah, for a standard sitcom, I think it's like 21 to 23 episodes for each season right there. So, yeah, it because yeah, I remember that like season one and season two were just like seven or eight or like six or seven. How, how much is it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think the first season is mysteriously. No, no, the first season is eight, I think. And then the second season is mysteriously seven, which I think we described, we figured it out because it's like, maybe it was like picked up again in that weird half slot. So that happened twice, I guess, for the first two seasons. Oh, it's so strange. I, I still think about that and it still throws me off whenever uh, I think about Northern Exposure because uh, the, the way that I track Northern Exposure episodes is that I actually go through the Wikipedia list. Yeah, yeah. And same. like, if you scroll through it, like really quickly, like one mouse turn, you just go through like an entire season <laughs> right there. Yeah. It's like gone within the blink of an eye. Um, well, the episode we're talking about today, obviously the 54th episode of the entire series, but we're in season four, episode 15. The title is Learning Curve. The air date originally was February 8th, 1993, directed by Michael Vittis and written by Jeff Vlaming, who, uh, you know, we've talked about before on this podcast. He actually started his career in showbiz, I guess, with a spec script for Northern Exposure. In the second season, he wrote the episode, The Final Frontier, and has continued as a writer on this show. He'll later go on to work with uh, X-Files and many other shows. But uh, we've all, I've talked about this before, but I think that's just so cool. This person just got their start in the industry just by writing a fanfic for Northern Exposure, and then it becomes uh, canon. Jeffy, coming in again. Yeah, this is a pretty good episode, I'd say. Um, well, I, I there's, you know, it's been a f actually a few days since I watched this, but Charles, you typically will watch this the day of recording, right? So it's, it's fresh for you? Yeah, it's pretty fresh. I, I want to say that it's, uh, it's not a bad episode for me, but it's definitely, like, I, I don't think I would rate this within the top five of oh, the okay. episodes of uh, the season. Yeah, you may be right on that. I just, uh, going back over the episode, preparing for this recording, my notes and like pulling out sound bites. There's some, I just think there's some really good performances and some, some cool monologues and stuff. So th there's definitely some nuggets of just incredible TV in this episode. But uh, overall, like when compared to uh, the rest of the season, I guess we'll see how it pans out. 
Let's get let's dive into it, I guess. Yeah, so let's talk about the starting scene for this, which is Joel driving into town with uh I want to say this is new music. Have we heard this before? I don't think we have. Uh I don't know exactly what it is, but it definitely feels like a David Schwartz original, like the composer for the show. Like it it has some similar like maybe drum sounds or just similar instrumentation to like the theme song of the show, but uh obviously it's more of like a I don't know. It's almost like a Latin Miami, like festive vibe, but then it also has that clarinet, which is not typical for this music, I would say, but it's an interesting, I guess that's, you know, the clarinet is representative of the New York, the Joel Fleischman. Oh, I missed that. So he rides into town and he skips past a 12 foot tall stepladder right there, <laughs> right in the middle of the street. Yeah. I, oh, I wish I'd written this down. I really love Joel. Like he just comes into the office and he's on, he's just on about something, you know, he's sort of like stringing out these phrases. Like, can you believe this? A 12 foot stepladder in the middle of the street. What were they reaching for? Like, you know, there's nothing up there. It's just sky. Um, do you remember like what he's saying in the scene? Yeah. He says like, what could they possibly be reaching for with this ladder? And he's speaking to Marilyn in the scene who is not really paying attention because she's knitting and thinking about her trip to Seattle. Yeah. Apparently, well, she says she's going to take a vacation she apparently has received a check for $5,000 from, I believe she says, from her corporation. Yeah, she says it's from her corporation. And I wasn't entirely too sure what they meant by that line. Uh, there is something that Alaskan residents do have. Uh, it's called the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation. And what it is is that it's an investment fund whose capital originates from the surplus revenues gained from the development of Alaska's oil and gas reserves. So if you live in Alaska and you plan to live in Alaska, the state of Alaska will cut you a check from those oil and gas reserves that it's getting. So the dividend payout for person in the year 2020 was about $1,000. And it was a really big decrease from 2019, which got $1,606. The largest payout was in 2008 with $2,000. So I'm really surprised that Maryland got $5,000 from this check. Yeah. But this might... It might not be this fun that she's getting. Okay, like yeah. this could be like a different corporation. Yeah, I for some reason I figured it was like something to do with the tribe as well. Like it was a native thing. But uh that is super fascinating. I kind of love that idea. And it's cool to think, you know, Marilyn just she says every six months she gets a check. Sometimes I think she says sometimes it's like a thousand dollars. It's not that much, but apparently like things were going well this year. So uh, she gets his $5,000 check and plans, uh, her whole, her whole deal is she says she wants adventure. She wants to go on an adventure to Seattle. That's right. She wants to go to the Emerald City, which uh, alludes to the lush evergreen trees in the surrounding area. What? No one calls it that. Is that, that's a real thing? I don't know. I, I know that they call themselves uh, Seattleites. Like that's the term for people that live there. That's pretty cool. It's kind of close to s satellite, but, um. Well, I think it's really cool that, you know, last week we were in Gross Point, Michigan, and this week we're promised a journey to Seattle. So like, you know, Northern Exposure has really got that travel bug just these past couple episodes wanting to, um, to get away. I like that. I like whenever the shows start getting onto field trips when it gets yeah. out of its own trappings because the audience understands the characters enough that they don't need the setting to carry them. Yeah, you know, Sicily has been such a strong element of the show, like, you know, a character in itself, as you might say. But um, we remarked on the last episode, Gross Point, 
you know, how unique of a episode it is for Northern Exposure, particularly because it's not set in Sicily, but for other reasons. Um, it was just such a interesting change of pace. And they really got to do so much with, you know, focus on characters. Now, this episode is dissimilar from the last in that last episode was really sort of one track. You know, it didn't really have too many subplots or anything. It was just focused on a couple of our key characters. This episode, I feel like, does branch out into more subplots and things. But um, I still really enjoy, you know, them (laughs) going to Seattle. I think that's really cool. So let's follow along with Joel's plotline with Marilyn, which brings us to the next scene, which is Joel going to Marilyn's house, dropping off some neat little items like a neck pillow or traveler's checks. Yeah, well, what what exactly is a traveler's check? Yeah, so traveler <laughs> checks are basically just something that you can use whenever you want to go to a foreign country, but you don't want to carry a lot of cash with you. So essentially, it's this check, and it's got your signature on it. And the place that you cash it in at, they'll take that in exchange for money. And the special thing about traveler's checks is that it cannot bounce. Mm. The bank will ensure that you get your money back with this traveler's check, which is why a lot of places are incentivized to take it. Interesting. Okay. And so it's like a little added security. Is it still a thing? I mean, I've just never, maybe I've just never had enough Uh, money to do that. (laughs) (laughs) No. So basically credit cards and debit cards kind of took over. That makes sense. But it was really interesting. It started from American Express, uh, from the brother of the founder of Wells Fargo, J.C. Fargo. He decided to go to vacation in Europe, and despite being, you you know, like the president of American (laughs) Express, they actually wouldn't take any money from him. Like, they wouldn't take any lines of credit unless he went to, like, a large European city. Mm. So, in place of that, he got really frustrated. He came back to America, and he introduced the idea of traveler's checks. Wow. Well, that's that's like more of a thing where like he just didn't want to carry money. He wanted credit, right? Right. Interesting. So I I think they still have it at American Express because they're the developers of it. But you got to go through a lot of. It's just not worth your time yeah. to do it. Like just just use like a credit card. It's now, a vintage. Or like just, yeah. It's it's a yeah. It's an older. Um, well, what else does Joel offer Marilyn? He has the Bazooka Joe chewing gum. Like you know, you chew the gum and it. It uh, neutralizes the pressure on your inner ear, he says, you know, like that popping you feel because of the altitude change. And then he bring, he also mentions like a money belt, which I guess is, it kind of looks like a fanny pack. It's the same thing, right? A money belt. Is that is that a fanny pack there? Uh, mm, that's a good question. Let me see. <laughs> it kind of just looks like a fanny pack, but maybe it is a little different. It's like, a, serves the same purpose. Um, Joel is very frightened about Marilyn not being prepared and and mostly about her getting mugged too. By the end of this scene, Joel says, you know, even a guy like me who grew up in this tough city of New York, um, he got mugged with like a screwdriver. I think he, I think he's saying like his muggers like held him up by screwdriver. Yeah. (laughs) I odd mugging tool, but I, I guess it's, you know, if you're in New York, you just get used to it. Uh, I actually just came back from Googling this. Okay. Yeah, so a fanny pack and a money belt are two different things. A fanny pack is larger and can hold items like cameras and wallets, whereas money belts are much more slim and more easily concealed. Oh, concealable, and you just like slide in some bills, some cards. That makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, Joel is coaching her to like wrap the purse. That's another thing, you know, like by concealing money, you know, it's like wrap wrap the purse strap. If you're going to carry a purse like this, wrap the strap around 
your hand. And, and this is like, that's where it starts getting annoying, I think. Yeah, I mm, I guess so. <laughs> I think it's just worried about her well-being and being in the city because from the context of this, from what I can gather, is that Marilyn hardly ever leaves the town of Sicily. So it can be really jarring for somebody to go from a very rural area, population of like 859, to a large city like Seattle. So I, I think he's just looking out for her, but I can see where you're coming from, where you're saying that he's just being overbearing. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but one of the things I really love about this plotline in this episode is like at first, how condescending this feels from like Joel on Marilyn, like how condescending it must be for Marilyn. But there is a turn that is just so lovely. We'll get there, but you can see that it's not, necessarily a condescending thing. It is, you know, maybe there is that part of Joel that really is just kind of super concerned and super caring. And um, I think it's also something that Joel kind of realizes throughout this episode. It's something that maybe he has always had, maybe he hasn't, but at this point he realizes it's there, that that sort of feeling of, um, I don't know if admiration is the right word, but you know, something close to that. So that brings us to the next scene, which is Marilyn arriving in Seattle. And she gets out of the airport, and there's a chauffeur waiting for her with her last name written on the sign. And she ignores it and decides to get on the shuttle bus instead. Yeah, we got the the big block text whirlwind. You know, Marilyn's last name, whirlwind. Uh, yeah, she just walks right past because she wants an adventure. And I'm going to move us on to the next scene where, you know, we get, we get some of that... Um, Similar to the opening soundbite we played, Joel talks with Maggie, kind of this feeling of concern, and he's just so surprised how everyone seems to be, you know, okay with this. It's like, it's a fine, Fleischman, don't worry about Marilyn. Um, I, I have a soundbite. This is kind of Joel's reaction. Wow, this is really chilling. What? You. Me? Like, uh, the veil's been lifted. The mask just ripped from your face for the first time. I, I see your true self. And it's it's cold. I, I, I mean, you, you are so cold and you are so bleak. This is endearing, Fleischman. Really, this misplaced paternalistic concern? I, I feel like I, I'm talking to an ice cube. I can almost believe you're a human being. Almost. Got the classic <laughs> banter, the, the classic bickering, and I love some of the... The words that Joel uses, um, I feel like I'm talking to an ice cube. <laughs> yeah, lots of uh, cold imagery right mm. there that he's using. Yeah, like, this is chilling. Yeah, this is really chilling. Um, yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, and that brings us to the next scene, which was the opening soundbite, where Ed comes into Joel's office to drop off some packages. And it kind of is the same scene from before, which is just Joel telling another person that he's worried about Maryland safety in Seattle. Yeah. I was just thinking about that. Like this doesn't necessarily advance the plot further than the last scene that we saw, but I guess it's another character's point of view to try to like shine a different part of that prism into this uh, dilemma, this conundrum that Joel's having. So we hear from Maggie, we hear from Ed and yeah, even if it is kind of similar, it didn't bother me necessarily but that is pretty surprising to see that these two scenes that she's, like you said, Charles, it's kind of the same scene in a way, but they're both in the episode. Yeah. The only new piece of information that we can get from here is Ed's use of another movie, uh, Frantic. Oh, wait. Yeah. I forgot about that. Uh, he says, Frantic, Roman Polanski, 1988. 
But what I actually have never seen that movie. He was describing Ed is describing like the plot to Joel, and it it's like um it's not good, right? It's like a negative outcome. Yeah, it's like uh, uh pretty similar to like Taken with Liam Neeson, I guess, <laughs> okay. like a little bit of that vibe. Yeah, something gets like abducted or mugged, or it's just it's uh, perilous, right? So then we see funny. We were we were kind of just recording a Patreon episode about this. Uh, like in the pilot episode of Northern Exposure, there's a lot of like extended montage with like the theme music behind it. We get a montage, a couple of montages in this episode. And um, it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. But this is Marilyn sort of like enjoying her adventure in Seattle. It, the opening shot is like Marilyn, I think she's walking around with like um, like a tourist book that's like Seattle. And then you see the monorail zoom, like kind of like go past the camera. The music here is really awesome. It's uh, sort of like this almost like native sort of crooning and wailing uh, to like the the tune of um, what is that song? By the way, I know the name of this song, but what's that tune? It's like so I could be way off, but the melody of, of this song really reminded me of like a nursery rhyme song. Uh, maybe you you recognize it too, but I did like a really deep dive just now to try to figure out what the name of the song was, and you know a lot of these nursery rhymes maybe originated from other pieces of music, and it turns out that it, you know. The song that I'm thinking of goes all the way back to a composition called Turkey in the Straw. So if you looked that up, you would definitely hear like a similar melody to what is uh, going on in this uh, Ojibwe square dance. That's the name of the song that's playing uh, here in this scene. Yeah, it's like a quintessentially American song. Uh, it's just when you think of that, you just think of like the Civil War, like the Reconstruction <laughs> era right there. Yeah. Seems kind of um, old timey in that way, but I really love this interpretation, and this song is pretty cool. Um, the the sequence is great throughout this montage. It's just like a a sequence of Marilyn having a great time, just kind of being like a loner walking about Seattle, and that just like not in a bad way. She's just like enjoying kind of being a stranger in a new place. You you know that feeling? Yeah, I'm actually a huge fan of doing that. Um, uh, I mean, we don't do it now in the year 2021 <laughs> with the lockdown, but I think that wandering around and just people watching is a really fun activity. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. And that's like what Marilyn, that's what Marilyn wanted. You know, she wanted to go out on an adventure, see something new and I guess be in a strange place. There's also a great shot of the ferry. You know, there's a ferry, I guess, in Seattle. Uh, very, very cool montage. Yeah, there's also a sequence of her sniffing some flowers in there. And I could not pinpoint the exact flower that it is, but I'm guessing that it's a bell flower, a purple bell flower. And those flowers usually represent eternal love, honesty, and unchanging love. Now, th these flowers are just placed in like a bouquet <laughs> of other flowers. This was not something planned. So I can't extrapolate meaning onto there. Yeah. But you know, I, I think it's kind of neat that it's right there in that it usually means something that's very honest. So that kind of represents who Marilyn is. She is uncompromisingly Marilyn. Yeah. I mean, even if it doesn't, even if it wasn't placed there on purpose, I think uh, I always enjoy this, like this new bit of trivia. Like, you know, we had Doggo Watch, which we still have. We're not getting rid of that. That's still, that's still around. <laughs> but now we can look for this like flower language. I don't know. I don't know what we should call this. Like Flower Watch 2021 would be too simple. Uh, let me think. Let it's me like think, uh, it's, it's going to 
the the flower shop, Charles. <laughs> no, so bad. Who? Uh, there's like I, I don't know if you can explain this joke from Thirty Rock, but Liz Lemon would always do like a quote, like an impression of um. I think it was like Oprah Winfrey or something. It would always go like, "I'm gonna take you down to the flower shop." Is that is that a reference to something? We can. This is this is like off mic, but like, I don't. I, I I've heard that twice in my life. Is it welcome to the flower shop? Yeah, it's like welcome to the flower shop. Welcome to the flower shop. Welcome to the flower shop. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I don't know what. It, it's uh, who is she impersonating? That's not Oprah, right? It's like it's no, that... it's not Oprah. <laughs> okay, that's what it'll be. Welcome to the flower shop. That's the that's the name of this uh, <laughs> this new segment. There's a director that I've been following a lot named Naoki Yamada, and whenever she had to pitch her first movie, she had an idea where she said that I want this character to just thread a needle for hours on end. And she was saying it jokingly to the studio heads, but looking back on it, she might have just been really serious. And I think about that quote a lot where like, could you actually design a whole movie where one character is just threading a needle for like two and a half hours? And the obvious answer would be like, no, you can't. There's no change. But it's also something really interesting in that you can see how the character would interact in a static field and like what they would do for this time being of doing a simple act. And that's really relatable to Marilyn, who's really essentially doing nothing. She's just wandering around town and we're just getting shots of her just doing whatever right there. And I think, honestly, you could just watch Marilyn do this for the entire episode, <laughs> and I think I would be fine. I mean, maybe. I guess if you had the kind of soundtrack that's going through this montage, like if you had just, I, I don't know, maybe Seattle is that unique that you could have, oh man, a 40-minute episode, <laughs> though, would be so long just to see Marilyn walking around. I think even like, you know, movies where it's like a whole movie of like one character trying to finish this yarn or, or whatever you described, you know, they usually have like flashbacks or like interludes, you know, so it, it's, it's not literally just watching someone, um, so a needle or, or whatever for two hours. Yeah. I think it's just less like them doing the act for two and a half hours and more how the character is relating to the act. So mm. the threading the needle is not interesting at all. You can watch anybody do that, but you watch this particular character and you see their mannerisms and how they would handle it. And that's the exciting thing. And maybe that's kind of the same way I feel about Marilyn, where I think she's the only character of Northern Exposure that would have just sat on a bench for an extended period of time. And we see how she's playing off of that. And that's revealing a lot of her character to us, the viewers. And I think that's why I like this scene so much. Yeah, yeah, I can get with that. So the next scene is Joel approaching Maurice now because he needs a loan. He needs 800 bucks so he can get a plane ticket and go to Seattle. And he's pretty determined with this. Like he says, like, you know, no matter, you can't convince me otherwise, I'm going to Seattle. You know, of course it's, you know, looking for Maryland in a big city is almost like finding a needle in a haystack. But Joel says, you know, I'm here right now and my hands are tied. If I were in Seattle... I would be able to actually feel like I'm actively doing something to try to find Marilyn and make sure she's okay. Right. Like, he just can't be sitting alone in Sicily. He's too worried about her well-being. I also like what Maurice says whenever Joel is asking for the $800. He says, hey, what do you need that kind of wampum for? 
and I didn't know what <laughs> yeah. wampum was. So I looked it up, and it turns out it was like these uh, like white beads that Northeastern Indian tribes would use as a form of currency. And the colonists, when they arrived, also adapted it as a currency in trading. But uh, the funny thing is, is that eventually the colonists got really good at making wampum, which caused oh inflation, <laughs> which ultimately led to the uh, obsolescence of the currency. Oh my god! Um, the the reason I know the word wampum is uh, this movie I watched like way too much as a kid. Had you ever seen? Like Chris Farley in Beverly Hills Ninja. Oh no, I, I've heard about it. <laughs> so uh, I, need to, I, I know of its existence. So I need to probably rewatch this because I used to watch it so much uh, as a kid. Chris Farley is somehow a ninja, uh, even though he's like this fat white guy, but um, he's this really good ninja. And uh, he's, it's a fish out of water story. You know, like he goes to, I want to say like LA or something. I got to correct myself here. He goes to Beverly Hills, as the title of the film suggests. And he's trying to go to a hotel and book a room. And the like concierge desk, like he puts like gold doubloons. Like he doesn't have money. He has gold, which is super valuable, I guess. But the concierge is like this snooty guy. And he's like, I'm sorry, we don't take wampum. You know, of course, it's, it's not wampum, but still, it's just kind of like a funny... Uh, or just deriding oh. way of passing it off, I guess. I think I would like to rent one of your lodgings. Is the cost great? Compared to what? A hut and a rice paddy? Sir, we are a five-star hotel with 800 rooms, booked six months in advance. I have money. I'm sure you do. Unfortunately, we don't take wampum. Do you perhaps take gold? Front. Perhaps I shall send... Dom Perignon to your room. I prefer to be alone tonight. Perhaps later I will meet your friend Don. So Joel does get the $800 from Maurice on the this weird condition. Basically, Joel is like now in debt. You know, I mean, he's like in debt to the state of Alaska, right? Because he's got to uh, work as a doctor here to pay off his scholarship. And this $800 is adding to the tab. So Maurice uh, factors it out. He says basically it's like... Two months, I think he says like sixty-four days, but he's like, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a pass on that. Like uh, two months added to your sentence, and Joel says, you know, this is extortion. It's usury, and you actually brought up usury in uh, in a past episode recently, um, Revelations. Yeah, I remember bringing it up because back in the day, it was incredibly immoral to prey on someone else's misfortune. So. In a, in a sense, this is exactly <laughs> what Joel is trying to talk about. Uh, but yeah, Maurice is, you know, a very cunning businessman and he <laughs> trades in time. But I think it's also a very sweet scene because Joel cares about Marilyn so much that he's willing to trade the only currency that truly matters, which mm. is his uh, his time. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. This next scene, I think, is the one that I was sort of like not wanting to spoil up front, but this is... Uh, Joel does get to Seattle and, um, oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm jumping to the, uh, like the police department scene. Is that happened before Joel is like doing, cause he gets a montage too. What, what happens first? Yeah. Yeah. The police station scene comes in first. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, he's sitting down with his detective and trying to like get some, you know, get this case up. It's like this missing person. Where's Marilyn? What happens here? 
Yeah, he's meeting with this detective, I assume, and Joel is trying to pinpoint the whereabouts of Marilyn right here, which, in my mind, I, I didn't know if that was like a free service or not. Like, I, I guess it is, <laughs> since it's the police, but still, I was thinking, I was like, Joel, you don't have that much money to be spending, man. Like, try to find her on foot. <laughs> well, I think, like, the it gets kind of tied up here. Like, the, the detective can't help him too much because, well, at first the detective says, you know, like, think of it this way. Marilyn gets off the plane, goes to the uh, airport lounge to have a drink, and uh, this charming man like picks her up, and they go back to his place. Happens all the time. And then I think also on top of that, my memory is a little foggy, but I think there's like some sort of rule that's in place in this scene where it's like, you know, I can't really do anything until another like what 24 48 hours like you know there needs to be a certain amount of time to elapse before they can like open a case or something yeah a little bit though that is a myth that's a misconception mm. you can definitely open a missing case without 24 hours and in fact if you actually stop and think about it <laughs> it actually makes a lot of sense because the first 24 hours right. are the most important in finding a missing person why would you wait and burn <laughs> those 24 hours is that yeah so yeah so no i was saying is that what happens in this episode does he say like oh we can't do anything until the next day i can't remember <laughs> <laughs> yeah, essentially, he's saying like, uh, no, we, you know, my hands are tied. The people up top don't want me to like pursue this until 24 hours. Wow. He also kind of says that, you know, he's kind of questioning who Marilyn is. And he's saying like, oh, is she like simple, like developmentally challenged? And Joel's like, no, 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 not like that. She's just without guile. Yeah. Well, this is what I was um, so impressed by is um, he, he, he leads off, Joel leads off with... Um, you know, she's not like other people. I mean, how do I say this? She's just not like other people. No? No, she's better. Better than what? Better than you and better than me. Better than anyone. She's, I don't know, she's simple. She's developmentally delayed. No, 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 not, not, not that kind of simple. On the contrary, she's very intelligent, insightful. I mean, she's even brilliant at times. I mean, when I say simple, I mean, like, in an elegant way. Joel says this a couple times to a number of people through the episode. I, I, I want to remember, like, he says it to Marilyn. Maybe he says it to Ed. But he, he says, Marilyn's not like other people. And when he says it earlier in the episode, it's condescending. It's almost offensive. You know, it's like, wow, like, Marilyn, sure, she doesn't say a lot. She, you know, she's very quiet. But, like, like Marilyn, like, it, it almost sounds um, demeaning. She's not like other people. But... What saves it and what's so, I don't know, almost brought a tear to my eye in this scene is, it's corny, but Joel says, you know, she's not like other people. She's better. She's better than you, better than me, better than anyone. Yeah. I guess he's trying to preserve that um, that special innocence that Marilyn has, which is why he's so overprotective of her, because he realizes that there isn't any other individual like that. Most individuals have lost that uh, I guess that sense of wonder or that that sense of wonder or that elegance that you just described earlier. So, yeah, I can see why this is a beautiful scene right there. Though, you know, it's really odd. I'm not, maybe I need to re-examine this episode in a different lens, but you're looking at it the way in which you think that it's very condescending and Joel is not taking Marilyn's feeling into account. And I never got rid of that initial feeling where I was saying like, maybe Marilyn just needed to check up with him. 
And I think if, if Maryland had checked <laughs> yeah. up with them once, I would be in the same boat as you. But all I can keep thinking is that, like, I can understand Joel's yeah, his, point of view. Yeah, how he might get mad and call her, like, she's not, you know, feel whatever. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Well, I have a little more to say in the next scene. But before we get there, you mentioned Joel describing Maryland with words like guileless. He also uses the word taciturn. Which is, oh God, it's such a great word. And it's the perfect word for Marilyn. Um, I, I had to look up the definition again, taciturn, of a person reserved or uncommunicative in speech, saying little. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's Marilyn. And guileless, devoid of guile, obviously, innocent and without deception. That's, that's that sort of like um, what you're describing, that innocence that he wants to protect. And that carries us to the next scene, which is Joel having his own montage. He's wandering around Seattle, the monorail is passing above him, and he's not having as good as a time because he's obviously worried about Marilyn's well-being. And it ends with him sloped against a wall and sitting down, which is kind of like the opposite of what Marilyn was experiencing because she was sitting on a bench. Mm. And Joel is now, he no longer has that support. He's just leaning against a wall and eventually just hits the ground. Yeah, so much can be said there with like the staging, but also like the, almost the choreography. I know it's just sitting, but just like the body language there. I want to point out the music here is Searchin' by the Coasters. Of course, it's kind of like a, the lyrics are a little Mickey Mousey, but really good song um, for the scene. And uh it does. This one is the one that reminds me a lot of sort of like the musical montages uh, or musical montage in the pilot, because uh, you know Joel is like splashed by some water by a driving car. It's almost like a humorous <laughs> sort of thing, very similar to when Joel is like on the bus to Sicily and he like bumps his head on the seat in front of him, just like those kind of corny little um, slapstick beats. And finally, just as you think Joel is about to give up, he goes to like a hot dog vendor. Uh, I believe he gets a kielbasa. And it looks like we're in like the Seattle Zoo. I don't know if there's a name for it, if they just call it the Seattle Zoo, but there's some elephants there. So uh, this must be a zoo. Yeah, he finds her at the zoo. And the reason he's able to do so is because instead of looking for her in touristy spots, he stops and thinks, where would she go? So he has to picture what she's thinking. He has to take her feelings into account and that's when he realizes and says like oh she would be at the zoo like that's where she would probably be and that's how he finds her it's giving me some flashbacks to the second episode of the series um brains know-how and native intelligence where ed's uncle anku tells joel if you want to catch a fish you got to think like a fish so Joel is like, if you want to find a Marilyn, you got to think like a Marilyn. Um, <laughs> what is he? Let's see. Do I have a soundbite for this? Now, I almost gave up hope, and then it hit me. The only way that I was going to find you was to think like you. So I started thinking, what would Marilyn do in Seattle, right? So I checked out some yarn shops, the Indian Art Center at Discovery Park, and bingo, I remembered the cranes, the ostriches, the zoo. It made perfect sense. <laughs> Here you are. I was right. I just wanted a nice spot to eat lunch. Yeah, well, eat lunch, whatever. The point is, is that you're here and you're safe. I love the ending of that monologue. The important thing is you're here and you're safe. And it's almost like it could have been written in parentheses right after that. And I understand you better for it. Like Joel, I feel like Joel 
is not only worried about Marilyn and, and increasingly worried uh, throughout the episode, I think he's starting to understand and realize, or I'd like to believe he's starting to understand for the first time what exactly Marilyn means to him and who she might exactly be, uh, you know, obviously as a friend to him, but as her own person. And, um, you know, cause he's got to like walk in her shoes to, uh, you know, he's got to think like Marilyn to find her. And, um, yeah, I hope I hope he's he's got some sort of uh, solace in that. Oh, yeah, that's a great explanation. I like that he doesn't get mad at her either because he spends most of the episode being incredibly irritated that she never replied back. But, you know, that ending line that he says is like, you know, the important thing is that you're safe. Uh, I, I just love that. Yeah, I, I also love I love how much in this monologue he keeps saying I can't believe, I can't believe it. Like this is cause I mean, it's very realistic for someone to be like, wait, what? Like how, how did I actually find you? But he keeps interrupting his own thoughts to say, I can't believe this. Like you're here. Like I actually did it. He's like, I mean, he's exuberant, happy to see her, but probably also thrilled that like impressed with himself that it, uh, it actually worked out. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that really is kind of an impressive plan <laughs> if you think about it. Like if you had to find somebody in the city of Seattle and you just only had like an inkling of who they were. Yeah. Like, I think I would also be that impressed that <laughs> I think about it. I don't think I could do it. Maybe this serves like that. Those constant interjections of, I can't believe it is a, is a way to sort of try to draw some realism here. Cause this is probably very unrealistic. As you said, it might be really hard to find someone uh, in such a large city. So, so they have to keep reminding you that Joel is just as surprised as you might be. This is the scene that ends the episode, and, and we're going to stick around here on the podcast because we still have, have to dive into uh, the other plot lines. But this is like the last shot of the episode is, uh, you know, Joel is kind of, now that he's found, Marilyn is saying like, you know, what do you want to do? You want to get some lunch? We could do whatever. Um, Marilyn's, you know, she does really give him some great reaction smiles like when when he's talking to her. But in this last scene, they just sort of like walk down a path, like they're walking away from camera, maybe deeper into the zoo, maybe onto something else. But it's great. Joel just, uh, maybe he's got a newspaper or something. He keeps like uh, listing off like a litany of suggestions for what they can do in Seattle. And Marilyn just keeps saying no, you know, like he just no and no and and then uh we fade out on that yeah i, I like that uh i think they bring up a playwright um oh um ibsen 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 and then he says like uh do you like him he's like no he's really depressing he's like yeah i understand <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah you're right yeah what a what a great ending of the episode i oh i can't remember but i want to say does this have like uh does it have music in it? Like, is it the same music as the opening? No, that, that was a little too little too vivacious in the beginning. So I wonder what plays here. Uh, it's kind of like that clarinet. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, not as lively as the uh, opening song, but still like that playful New York Joel Fleischman clarinet. Okay, let's rewind the tape and go back to the beginning of the episode where we're going to be talking about Hollings plotline about uh, ripping off, what well, about uh, the Billy Madison <laughs> movie before it came out <laughs> yeah this episode is called learning curve so you gotta do some learning in it um hauling is going back to school as you said ripping off billy madison the introduction of this well, plot well, oh go ahead it's not ripping off of billy madison in that billy madison came out in 1995 oh. <laughs> so 
Oh uh, man, predates. May, they, they were they were in development at the same time, so maybe <laughs> someone stole from another person. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a sitcom trope, right? Um, I imagine this has happened something like this before. But oh yeah, the way this plot line is set off is uh, Shelly finds like a school bag under their bed, and she's like, "Oh, this must belong to." Yada Yada's son, like he was over here when uh, he came by to fix like the pipes or something. His son was here. Um, and Holling has to explain that the books are his. Like uh, he's been studying these textbooks. Uh, he's going to classes. He's trying to get his uh, GED, I guess. Yeah, he's trying to finish out high school again because he had the dropout. And uh, he he wanted to surprise Shelley with this achievement. And she's thrilled she's like really into this she relates the story about um th- this uh footballer in high school randy tater i just thought that was a terrible name <laughs> randy tater uh dropped out <laughs> of high school to you know because he wanted to pursue the nfl and uh he just uh, you know one day uh, one night got drunk at a party and slipped and like messed up his knee and he's just you know he never made it to the nfl Oh, Hollings' reason for never graduating high school is that he was building railroads, I guess, at the time. Like, he dropped out of high school to uh, get some money building railroads with a friend. Yeah, I guess, like, you know, Hollings, what, 63 years old right right there? So, I guess it just wasn't that important to get a high school education in, like, the 40s. Yeah, certainly not. Like, uh, he's done fine. You know, he's a business owner. Uh, He doesn't really, he doesn't need it. He's got the life that he wants. But I think... um, he wants that sense of achievement and he wants to give, I think he says it, like he wants to give Shelly a partner that is uh, an educated person. Like he wants to be that kind of uh, partner. Yeah, he wants to provide for her if something ever went down and he needs to restart his life. So that brings us to the next scene where Holling is at school with a new character played by a same actress that's been on the show, Joe Anderson, playing the role of Jane Harris. Yeah, Jane Harris, this uh, school teacher, is played by the same actor who um, portrays Rosalind, right? Yeah, Rosalind in, yeah. in the episode Sicily. Uh, I thought she was great uh, in this episode. I, I hate her character, but uh, we'll get to that, I guess, later in the episode. No, nah, she, she's fine. She's fine. Uh, she's, a, <laughs> she's a cool teacher. Um, she's a great actress in this episode. The classroom is, is inside like the church, I want to say. They've kind of turned that into a classroom during this uh it's like crazy winter snowfall. Yeah, I like the setup of the classroom, actually. So it has kids, it has teens, and it has hauling. So it's not just <laughs> one class that's being taught, like, let's say, third grade. It has just like a wide gamut of students. I don't know why I'm such a fan of that, because that only happens in small rural areas where they only have one school and presumably only like one teacher. Yeah. So they just cram them all into one classroom. Yeah, it, it seems, I don't know if we get this up front, but we learned that... Um, Mrs. Harris here, she's like a traveling teacher. So she's maybe here for the season or something. But um, yeah, it's like you get that Pledge of Allegiance shot where it kind of pans across the classroom. You see like little kids. Then you're like, okay, there's teens there. And then Hauling is like in the background, this 63-year-old <laughs> man or something saying the Pledge of Allegiance. He's got a really cool multiplication trick, right? 
Like he does something with his fingers, his counting? Yeah, so he uses his like uh, knuckles and fingers in, in order to do arithmetic functions that you would ordinarily use a calculator for. And the neat thing about this scene is that it's demonstrating that Halling has the potential to do what other high schoolers are doing and above, but he has to do it his own way, his own solitary way of which he learned it and not beholden to the school system that you ordinarily would have because Jane Harris brings up because Jane Harris brings up the point that he's going to have to show his work whenever he is taking the test. He can't just use his knuckles like that and poof, out comes the answer. Yeah. It's kind of like in high school when they, you know, they want you to show your work. What's the joke where it's like, you know, your high school teacher's like, you're not going to walk around with like a calculator all the time. You're going to need to know how to do simple arithmetic. I mean, now we have phones that have calculators in them. <laughs> so <laughs> that was a <laughs> go ahead. The, I had to do something similar like that in college where I had to learn how to do amortization tables by hand, mm. which is it's not hard to do, but it's a very uh, meticulous structure. Mm. And yeah, you you just use a program like for that. Excel like or just, something? <laughs> uh, not necessarily okay. Excel, but you boot up like an accounting program and the amortization table's like right there. Like a machine does it for you. Like there's never a reason which you're like, you're sitting there with like a client and you're trying to amortize his asset and you're like, all right, let me do this by pencil. It's like, no, you just <laughs> plug it into the program. I'm old school. It's like, no, please. So that the finger knuckle counting, that's a real thing or? I don't think so. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> well, I know like you can teach, um, I think there's a way to like teach multiplication like that, but those numbers are huge. Like uh, the, the the numbers that he solves for. Holy crap. There's like a wiki how that looks so interesting. What? <laughs> it shows you how, I mean, I again, I don't think you can use like huge numbers for this, but I can't, I don't know. I wonder like if it works with Small numbers, it's just like an extra extrapolation of that. Wow. Well, anyway, it's not going to cut it on the exam. He's going to have to show his work. So the next part of this plot line is, uh, you know, we we saw Halling in the classroom. He's kind of nervous. I mean, obviously, he's just like sticks out like a sore thumb. But um, we also see him at home just really stressed with school. Uh, I guess at work, rather, you know, at the brick. He's choosing to work instead of uh work on his assignments. Like he's choosing to man the bar at the brick. I guess he's just like kind of stressed and needs to get away from it. But uh, Shelly, you know, who's trying to be supportive is also laying on some pressure, you know, like your homework comes first, I think she says. And um, during this, uh, this whole dialogue, uh, Miss Harris comes and walks into the brick. Right. She orders a scotch, which kind of freaks out Holling. I'm not entirely too sure. I, I don't know if it's because he's not. It, it's just like a weird situation where your teacher is drinking with you. If he didn't think that she'd be the type of person that would drink or if he's just being incredibly sexist and he didn't think that women <laughs> could drink scotch. I think it's just the thing where like, you know, if you saw your, you're in a classroom with a teacher and then if you see your teacher at a bar, well, Maybe in college, it'd be okay to be like, what's up, professor? And like grab a beer. But like in middle school or in uh, elementary school, which, uh, you know, Halling, that's all of Halling's classmates are high school or less, I would say. Uh, you know, if, you're, if your high school teacher was like, you see them out drinking like not only, not like a daiquiri or like a margarita, but like a double scotch, like something uh, pretty heavy, I guess. Uh, sure. Yeah. It, it's a stereotype, I guess. But but you're right. Like in reality, Charles, I think uh, it doesn't make too much sense. Holling's a experienced 
bartender. Like he could understand that teachers are going to come and drink. So that brings us to the next scene, which is back in the classroom, which opens with uh, little Stuart <laughs> explaining his dream, which is a terrible essay idea. Like he's talking about <laughs> how like, I think like the earth was uh, breaking out of orbit or something and like the world was coming apart at the seams and then it ends with him saying like, and then I woke up and it was all part of a dream. And I think, I think his hair should have like docked him a lot of points on that. <laughs> like this is not good writing. It was all a dream. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, next up is Holling. He's got to read his essay. Of course he says, you know, I, I wrote it really fine. You know, it's really easy to, to read. I can just turn it in. You know, I, I um, my handwriting's really clean. I think he says something like that. And she says, no, no, no. I think we'd really like to hear it in your uh, in your speech. So he's got to like read out his essay. It's about like this this man, this character, Oates Moncrief, who I guess hauling, uh, oh, actually I can't remember the exact details, but Oates Moncrief was like sent to prison or something because of hauling, something that hauling had to do with. And now Oates is a free man and wants to kill hauling. And so they have this crazy, it's just this very violent description, you know, in, in this essay. I'll, I'll put the whole thing at the end of the episode if you want to hear Holling's presentation. But uh, it's quite hilarious that like uh, at the end of his essay, there's just like dead silence for so long. And then Holling has to say, you know, the end, just to make sure that everyone gets like, okay, it's over now. Like you can applaud <laughs> or you can say something. What does Miss Harris say? She says. Um, very vivid. She says it was very vivid. Yeah. yeah. I think what that scene is trying to demonstrate is that Holling learns best by being solitary. Like, he's not comfortable showing his work. Just like he doesn't show his work with the multiplication, he doesn't want to have to show his work of how this essay should be told in his own voice, which is very important if you're trying to write an essay. You have to do it in your own voice. You have to do it in your own writing. So... I think that's what the scene is trying to demonstrate right here. Though it's obviously, like you said, like played for comedy because it's a you know, obviously a rated R story, not for little kids. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's a lot of this plot line leading towards um, the next scene, which is the scene where like we learn about this, uh, like you're saying, sort of like this solitary nature of hauling, uh, particularly when it comes to learning and like the search for knowledge. Um, so, so hauling's got this conference with uh mrs harris i guess just talking about like um his progress and shelly comes in like right at the beginning i like that shelly says uh i'm not being a budinsky or anything am i i think that's a great <laughs> uh, a great word well you know uh shelly says you know holling's embarrassed that's what it is he's shy and uh i've got a soundbite for what holling has to say here you see miss harris it's like this when I was no more than six or seven, I used to have this old piece of slate that broke off from our roof and a chunk of soap that I'd write on it with. I used to go out into the woods and teach myself the ABCs. Really? Yes, ma'am. I'd sit out under the trees in the birch leaves and the spruce needles and all by myself, reading, writing down words I didn't know. So you see, ma'am, to me, schooling has always been a solitary sort of thing with nothing but the grackles and the jays to pay me any mind. And I guess I'm just having a hard time switching tracks. I love that scene. I think it's showing that Holling is really set in his ways. Uh, he understands the trouble that he's in, in that, like, the times are changing and he needs to pick up with it. But 
You know, uh, for a self-taught man that's very independent right there, I can really respect that he's just trying to change course so late in his life, even though everything he's done up till now has been, quote-unquote, his way. Yeah, like it's worked for him this long. Why challenge it? So it's uh, admirable to see that, like someone who's willing to get outside their comfort zone or, or try for something that, you know, it's just like they've never succeeded that way. Why should they... Why should they go down that track? But um, you know what? This reminds me, I brought this up in some episode of our podcast, but there's this great quote. I'm going to probably butcher it at this point because I don't have it ready, but someone was describing, um, it's probably like Herbie Hancock describing a conversation he had with Miles Davis. You know, Miles Davis is famous for jazz trumpet, uh, specifically the blues, you know, like the album Kind of Blue. And he made lots of great like blues, like jazz recordings. And Herbie asked, okay, sorry, it was Keith Jarrett. So, so piano player still, but Miles Davis told Keith Jarrett, you know why I quit playing ballads? Because I love playing ballads. So the idea here is, um, you know, getting out of your comfort zone, but recognizing at least for hauling that like, you know, it may not be something that he enjoys or that he's good at, but it's something to discover still. Um, and maybe it's, that's the achievement Maybe that's the part of him. Uh, it's kind of hard for me to grasp here because in the very next scene, he feels super defeated and almost like he's going to give up. But maybe in the beginning, it was that part of him that was like, I can be an achiever. I can do something different. Yeah, that's a great analogy to use for hauling right there. Oh, here's a thought. Do you think that hauling is resistant to this change? Because if he decides to show his work, he decides to follow through with what the educational system wants him to do, he's actually going to lose a part of himself and therefore he's losing his reason for even doing this in the first place. So like to reiterate, to make it more simpler, the reason he's doing this is for Shelly predominantly. He wants to provide for her. He wants to be the individual that she can rely on. But for him to achieve that goal, he has to give up a part of himself. So it's kind of counterproductive. Uh, I don't know. I think... Um... I can kind of see that. I can see a little bit of that. Um, I think in the next scene, at least how Halling lays it out, you know, this is the scene of despair um, when he's almost about to give up, right? He, but he he puts it, you know, I can read, I can write. Why do I need any more education? I'm content. No piece of paper is going to help or hinder that. So he's saying like he's already got what he needs to be happy and Shelley should be happy with him for that. But it does, maybe maybe you're onto something because it does go counter to what he laid out as the surprise in the beginning to be something better for Shelly. Um, at this point, he's kind of backing down from that. He's in a way saying like, I'm already good. I'm happy with myself. You can be happy with where I am now, even if I'm not an achiever. But what's lovely here is that Shelly believes in him too. You know, she wants him to be an achiever. Oh yeah, you're right. So it's kind of like, it, it, it reverses course again. Yeah. In that the individual that Holling is, is that he's not a quitter, as Shelly says. So that's the part that she likes about him and he needs to regain that part of his identity. So what nice. we're talking about is the next scene where Shelly uses a story about her days of being in the pageantry, how she was saying like she would go into this room and it would be filled with other girls that were much more prettier or had this trait that she wished that she had. And you feel that you want to drop out, but you can't because the important thing is that you tried, like the effort that you put in was there. 
So even if you don't win, it's still better to at least be a contestant. Yeah. She says, you're in it because just being in it is major enough. If you weren't a winner, you were a contestant at least. If you quit, that's all you are, a quitter. Yeah, that's the idea. It's like, you know, the second you give up, that's you calling your own loss. You know, like there's a potential, a possibility for success. But if you're the person who keeps yourself from success, like this, this is just like, you know, this sounds like Ted Lasso or something, you know, this sounds like (laughs) an inspirational, uh, motivational speaker, but you know, there's, there's a lot of sense to that. Um, and the music here that they play, I don't know if you recognize, I want to say it's the same cue that they use whenever like that episode when, um, Shelly is performing the puppet show for hauling, uh, you know, like at the brick, it's the one when, uh, Oh, what's that episode? It's the one where Hauling like goes off and drinks all that potato vodka and comes back. Um, and she's like tells him the story of his uh of his life through a puppet show. Oh, I didn't know that was the same music. I think I it do is. remember that scene yeah. though. Sort of like a jaunty, almost honky tonk, but like really happy. I don't know, maybe it makes me think of like Oregon Trail or something, but just the beginning of Oregon Trail when it's happy and you're just setting off to embark, like you're not, you know, like months in and like have broken legs and dysentery and all that. (laughs) And now we have like a Rocky montage scene, which is Holly trying to beef up on his education. He's, uh, he's learning something that I thought was very funny and that I think everybody in America knows this process now, which is, how a president is elected. Yeah, the inauguration, uh, he's going over that. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, if it was if it was any other year than 2021, you know, or 2020, I, I, I would stand to learn something from this scene. But yeah, you're right. I think we all know how this works at this point. Or, or and he so. nailed it, man. Yeah. <laughs> Holling knew the exact procedure because we walked through it as a nation <laughs> to see how this works. Yes. Um, the next time we see Hauling, you know, I didn't really catch it at first, but it's after he has taken his exam. Like he's looking through a textbook and he's realizing, oh, I got this wrong. I got that wrong. But just something I, I don't know if I ever did that. Maybe I guess I must have whenever I was in school. Like you finish a test because, you know, I would be pretty certain when I was taking a test, like, oh, I got that right. I got that right. I know this. And then when you get like a bad grade, you're like, what? Like, I, I didn't know that. But then there were times when I was taking a test and I'll come across a question and just be like, okay, I have no idea what this is. But afterwards, did I go back and look up that answer? I'm not sure. I think I just like, really? like I'm not, I probably did. I must have at least a couple times. Sorry, did you do that all the time? Uh, in college, after I took a test, I would always like leave the room and there'd be other people that would also just be like standing around in the hallway. And I would always ask them, even if I had yeah. never spoken to them in class, we were all the same uh, soldiers. We like, <laughs> we were all in the trenches together. So we would always be like, Hey, what'd you put down for like number 13? It's like, Oh man, I don't know, man. I think I did like this, this, this. I'm like, Oh shoot, man. I did like this. And you're yeah. like, Oh crap. <laughs> and I think that was something that stuck with me. Cause that happened in like all of my classes towards the end. We all just started asking like what we put down and stuff. <laughs> But yeah, this is the scene where Holling is reviewing what he missed and Jane comes in and she's telling him, it's like, you know, there are, uh, there are a few things that I like in my job. Yeah, I get to set my own hours. I get to do all this fun stuff, but this is also one of the perks. And she hands him his, uh, is it a diploma? Like, wh- I what, guess so, what is right? the term? It's like a, yeah, it's like, a, I guess it's a diploma, right? It's like a certificate. Yeah, yeah, GED. it's like right here. 
Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It says right here, the high school diploma in the state of Alaska signed by the governor himself. And uh, I don't know if you said this just now, but uh, Miss Harris calls out um, Holling's full name, Holling Gustav Vincour. So he's, a, he's a, got a Gustav in the middle name. I don't. We may have said that already, but I think we knew that. <laughs> <laughs> probably someone has probably called him by his full name at this point. So there you go. I guess it, that's the last scene, right? That ends. Yeah. Uh, one little interesting piece of trivia is that the governor at the time would have been Wally Hickle, who was the second governor and the eighth governor of the state of Alaska. Now, there's been previous presidents before, but when it became a state, they reset the timer. So that's why he is the second and eighth one. (laughs) But he had a large gap in that he was elected in like the 1950s, and then he got nominated to be Secretary of the Interior in Nixon's cabinet. But unfortunately, he had to resign because he was uh, really opposed to the way that Nixon's Vietnam War policy was being done and how he handled the shooting of college students at Kent State University. Mm. So he was forced to resign. And then many years later, he just ran for governor again <laughs> as the Alaskan Independent Party and actually won. Nice. So that's, that's whose signature Hauling has on the, um, the diploma. So we've got one last little plot line. I shouldn't say little. It's a, it's one of my favorite parts of the episode. Uh, but it is, I think it's only like three scenes. It's like Maggie's plot with with uh, Miss Harris. Right, right. We really get their, their meeting in Ruthann's store. Yeah, Maggie meets with Jane and she remarks to her how she must have felt like so empowered to show up all those other male pilots because presumably it's a field in which there aren't that very many women in. And she's saying like, oh, it must have been so awesome. You must have been fired up and all that. And Jane actually replies back saying that like, no, actually, I I don't think I was actually like the right one for the job. I actually don't even think like people of my gender were the right one for the job. She says that we are irrational, emotional, unpredictable, unstable. She says that due to their biological functions, it is actually a detriment to her skills as being a fighter pilot. Yeah, Jane says it's, you know, it's like a hormonal thing. Like, you know, women are either on their period or about to get their period or just had their period. So she says because of that, she says they only have like two weeks a month of relative sanity is what she says. Uh, Some more pull quotes. Uh, Women are soft, mushy, and they can't be trusted to go for the kill. She's speaking for women as a whole, and Maggie will press her for this later, I guess. Uh, but it's, I don't know, it's pretty flagrant. And do you think, like, what is Ruthann's opinion of this matter? Obviously, she's not, like, part of the conversation, but she hears this. Is she sort of like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, I, like, does she agree with this or? Yeah, kind of. I thought it would have been better <laughs> if we would have expounded on that and know a little bit more about what Ruthann's thoughts were. But she does say, like, oh, yeah, I agree. Like, we do have... You know, these uh, factors that come into play that diminish us, um, which is kind of kind of out of character for Ruthann. Yeah. Obviously, this entire segment is meant to, you know, parallel against Maggie. And I'm pretty sure they knew that the audience was going to react negatively to this. Even in like, like you know, 1990s, that such a strong perceived gender roles, especially one that plays into such negativity, was obviously bound to like, you know, get us riled up against this character right there. But I, I like it when shows don't hold your hand. Like if every word coming out of the character's mouth is meant to represent the author or the playwright or anything, it's good for the characters to have their own soul and for their own identity. So 
even though like we as listeners, you know, probably most of us would disagree with what Jane is saying. I can at least respect that this is coming out of a character that they're trying to develop as our own being. Yeah. It kind of throws you for a loop with their character. Obviously you don't expect, you know, Maggie will say it later. It's like, you're an educated woman um, to, to hold these kind of opinions. So it's like, Oh wow. Kind of a gut punch, kind of a surprise. Yeah. And you know, Ruthann normally is, if you go back to like survival of the species, you know, Ruthann and Maggie are often similarly aligned, you know, as women, but maybe it's a thing where Ruthann is like experienced and she's like, you know, when it comes down to it, all the women I know, or that, you know, she's like, all maybe that's her angle, but it is a little surprising. And I guess it's smart that Ruthann doesn't really involve herself too much in this conversation because like you're saying, Charles, it's kind of a disconnect for what we would expect from Ruthann, Ruthann being on like uh, normally on Maggie's side. So the next scene is sort of the confrontation. Maggie is in the airfield working on her uh, her plane. Actually, why is Miss Harris there? Because she, she comes there. Why does she go there? I think just because she knows, I mean, she flew jets. Yeah. So she knows all about this. I guess she was just coming to a person in need. Yeah. And, and um, it almost feels like Miss Harris is mansplaining to Maggie or it's not even that. It's like, she's kind of like Maggie is saying, oh no, this was wrong with the engine. This was happening. Something wrong with the plane. And uh, Jane, Miss Harris is saying, you know, it's not that it could be this and it could be something to do with like, I think she almost makes it a personal thing where it's like, it could be like the pilot, like a, a like an inexperienced pilot might do this and, and mess up mess it up in this way. Yeah, I rewatched the scene a couple of times and uh, it, it just had so much jargon in it that I couldn't wrap my hand <laughs> that I couldn't wrap my head around what yeah. was it, but I, I could glean from it that like maybe there was some subtext behind it. And I thought it was really curious that you thought that she was trying to be condescending on it because the way that I read the scene, maybe because I didn't have that subtext, was that she was just trying to find the correct answer for Maggie. Okay. It could be that. And maybe Maggie is like supposed to be overreacting. But from what I got, it was sort of something like uh underhanded remarks, like um, sort of uh, debasing Maggie's experience as a pilot saying like, if you're not an experienced pilot, it could lead to these uh, malfunctions or something. But again, I think I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Charles. I kind of don't understand what they're talking about. But, you know, this begins to boil over and uh, Maggie just comes right out and starts to confront uh, Jane about like what she was talking about in Ruthann's story. I I've got a soundbite. How could you say that? How could I say what? Unstable, two good weeks a month, won't go in for the kill. Women shouldn't fly combat. You actually said that, women shouldn't fly combat. That's my opinion. Your opinion? Well, that can't be your opinion. Why not? Because you're a woman. And you're a, you're a smart, competent, educated woman. So? Well, so where have you been the past 20 years? Haven't you heard of sisterhood? We're supposed to stick together. Who is supposed to stick together? Women. Oh, you're one of those. One of what? You think just because we both presumably wear pantyhose and shave our legs that we're supposed to have the same opinions about things. You see, I have my own ideas. They're my ideas. And if you don't like it, that's just too bad. And I'm not going to let you or any other sister dictate how I think or how I feel. Oh, yeah, and a, um, another thing, sister. I already have a sister. 
And you're not her. I love the performance here with Maggie. She's got a lot to work with uh, here with the writing and just like the distress, the disbelief here, like uh, just how, how she's so appalled at, at this character, Jane. And I think what we're supposed to take from this and what will happen, maybe we'll, we'll get to it in the next scene, but at least in this scene, you know, the idea is that Jane says, you know, I, I'm allowed to have my own ideas. Um, and, you know, sure, that's a great point. It's like, you know, we can disagree. Like, you know, maybe you think that's the wrong idea, but this is what my ideas are and you're not going to change that. My only, <laughs> I think my only uh, response to that is, fine, like you're entitled to your own ideas, but this idea that she has is, it's like restricting a whole gender. It's, what's the word I'm looking for? It just does, it seems, it just kind of sucks, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 exactly. I like, I like the sentiment behind what she's trying to say in that like, you know, we are all our own individuals. We have thoughts and opinions that doesn't need to conform to the expectations of others. Like I get that, but the idea that uh, this entire gender you can't do something because of pseudoscience is like obviously <laughs> harmful. It's reductionist. It sets back human beings where it shouldn't be. You know, rehearing that scene, it's weird that Maggie tried the rebuttal using sisterhood as her answer rather than trying to attack the science behind it. I think she would have won the argument if yeah. she would have been like, well, show me the proof that after we have our period, we are, you know, like worse human beings. It's like, where is that coming from? Because that's her crux of her argument. She attacked it <laughs> in a different manner that like obviously was not going to work, in well, my opinion. Like, well, Maggie's Because sisterhood can be easily dismembered. Well, well, Maggie's argument, yeah, here is, that's like pathos, right? Like uh, an emotional argument. Whereas, uh, you know, the argument for science would be like like the logos, like the, the rational argument. Um, response. But I guess is, that's, is that indicative of uh, Maggie's character? Is she typically more emotional than rational? Sure. I mean, she's not to say that she's irrational, but um, I guess she could be characterized by the show as an irrational woman. But, uh, but so maybe it makes sense here that that's why she's going for that sisterhood angle. But I think you're right. Like the argument to go with is the, the scientific one. Right. That reminds me of uh, like this paradox about tolerance, where if you're truly tolerant, then you need to be tolerant of the intolerant. But you actually can't do that because if you exist in a place that allows that, inevitably, the intolerant will take over from the people that are tolerant. So it's a paradox in that like you actually do need to stamp that out, even <laughs> though you are, quote unquote, tolerant. Yeah, I mean, I, that's an interesting paradox. Um I think it's a, I guess we're, we're just saying the same things again and again, but um, this is a very interesting debate to have. It's like, we're entitled to our own ideas. We don't have to agree. This is a bad battleground here. This, just, this idea just sucks. It's just like, it's too broad, I think. And that brings us to the final scene with Jane and Maggie, where Maggie finally relents and says that like, I agree, like agreeing to disagree, having opinions, you're right. Uh, I shouldn't try to impose myself onto you. Yeah. And what Maggie's saying here, I, I, I can get behind. Like, it makes sense. Agree to disagree. She says, it's even stupider to think we're all going to have the same point of view. But I, at least on this on this argument, I, I think Maggie should try to throw another left hook or something, you know, come in with the science argument. I don't like that 
I don't like Miss Harris. Sorry, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> That's actually really interesting because uh, I know of her flaws, and it's not like I'm buying into her argument <laughs> whatsoever. But I actually think she's a very interesting character. I want her to return because one, it's cool to have a teacher character. Yeah, we just don't have that in the show for some reason. And number two, it's good to have conflicting voices, uh, even though what she's espousing is like terrible. I, I think that she's so against a grain that it would be interesting to have her in town. I think you're right. Like uh, you said this earlier, like the audience, pretty much the audience of the show probably would disagree with Miss Harris in that first scene with Ruth Ann. You know, they would already be against her. They're on Maggie's side. So I think I, I would love to see her come back and because we would have these sort of arguments and, you know, that helps you realize like, okay, what do I think about this subject? Obviously, uh, at least for me, I, I'm not in agreement with uh, Ms. Harris, uh, Ms. Jane here. But um, yeah, there, I think there's a lot that they could extract from that. Just having that sort of combativeness between, well, specifically Maggie and Ms. Harris, but I guess you could do it with, uh, with other characters too. All right, Charles, now is the time of our podcast to introduce the next segment this is where we bring on someone who has, you know, usually someone who has never seen this show before to get an outsider perspective, sort of a fresh angle. Uh, really, we're kind of looking for like more of like the modern eye. You know, this show was it's about like 30 years old now. So uh, what does 2021 have to say about, uh, well, this episode specifically? And today we are joined by one of our friends, Jeremy from... The West versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator podcast. Uh, we had Eric on earlier this season, and they were nice enough to have us on their podcast. Uh, which I guess I should explain: it's a podcast about the filmographies of the director Wes Anderson, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul W. S. Anderson. So all those directors, they cover all their entire filmography. I think at this point, they're pretty close to have covered all of the films there. I guess there's you know always more films to come uh, from those directors, but yeah, I'm glad they kept their name though. <laughs> yeah, because I thought they were gonna they they like to rename their podcast whenever they go on to different directors. But it looks like they're still on that. I, I like that you said that it was a uh, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, and who was the third Paul? Paul W S Anderson. Paul W S Anderson, but then there's Predator tacked on at the end. <laughs> I think it's because um, well, I, maybe I'm wrong here. I think it's because. Alien versus Predator is directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Okay, yeah, that, that movie was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, but it also rolls off the tongue a little bit with that title. Um, but yeah, you're right. They do change their the title of their podcast depending on you know what their focus is. So maybe we'll get another uh, podcast name soon. It seems like they might be uh, switching directions after they finish uh, the filmographies here. By the way, they were nice enough to have us on their podcast we talked about the Wes Anderson film, The Royal Tenenbaums, which is, I think, like classic, uh, prime Wes Anderson. But Charles, um, so we got Jeremy here. He's actually had never seen the show before. Eric had reached out to us because uh, he had just started watching Northern Exposure. So Eric, I hope this is uh, hooking Jeremy to become a fan so you guys can watch some episodes together sometime down the line. Uh, but anyway, let's let's hear what Jeremy says about this episode. 
Hello, Northern Overexposure Boys. Lee and Charles. This is Jeremy Schmidt, co-host of the West versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator podcast. The only podcast I'm aware of that covers all of the films of Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Paul W.S. Anderson. I'm here to record a little snippet, a little blurb for Season 4, Episode 15 of Northern Exposure, a show I've actually never seen before. I've seen scenes of this show, but never an entire episode. So first off, who is this guy in the beginning? Who is this guy? This doctor guy? This guy is, well, he's chewing up the dang scenery over here. It's a uh, sort of a term for when somebody's overacting or overperforming. He's got just like some interesting mannerisms about him. This guy walking around being being the most, as my girlfriend might say. He's just wa- walking around being the most. I don't think this guy should care so much about this uh, about his receptionist's vacation. What the hell? Why does he care so much about his receptionist's vacation? I get that he's maybe neurotic, but uh, smothering. At the very least, he's smothering. Beyond that, probably being a little sexist, right? I mean, why can't she just handle herself on a vacation? Overprotective, sure. But he seems to think that she's uh, incapable. This is, of course, referencing his receptionist wanting to take a vacation to Seattle. I love the moose, by the way, in the in the intro. Love that moose. That's a good guy, that moose. So everyone had warned me about this older uh, gentleman, young girl relationship on the show. Uh, I guess maybe because I've been primed so much for it, it didn't really bother me. Didn't really bother me. Most of the episode is about him having to go back to high school in a uh, Billy Madison style uh, premise. Didn't mind it. Didn't mind it at all. Thought it was, you know, pretty good. Guy can count pretty good on his fingers. I think that's a good good skill to have. He also is a very good writer. We see that later on in the episode. Very good writer. Um, Shelly, the wife, or the girlfriend, whatever, helping him out all along, all along the way. Like these two. Don't mind these two. I'm sure really wouldn't fly today. Let's move along. Uh, yeah, I guess our main character here, this doctor, this Northern Exposure doctor, continues to just be absolutely inappropriate this entire show, trying to get, borrow money so that he can go on a, he can go literally fly down to Seattle. So smothering this guy. Ugh, can you imagine having a partner, some sort of girlfriend or boyfriend, some sort of partner, this smothering, gonna take a little vacation to get the, probably just to get the hell away from this guy. He comes and tries to find you. Wow. No thanks. Who is this teacher? What on God's green earth is this teacher? She's teaching the the students who, by the way, in this high school class, ages all over the map. We got some middle school kids in here for sure. We got some high school kids in here for sure. All of them learning about grammar. (laughs) Uh, This teacher's got some problematic views. She doesn't think women can fly planes in combat because they have periods. And the show seems to think that that's a very, that's a valid opinion. That's a valid take to have for a teacher, no less. Uh Uh-uh. No, no way. She's absolutely wrong. (laughs) Women can be in leadership and they can make decisions in any scenario. Thought it was crazy, especially the, the resolution to this. Everyone can just have their own opinions. Huh. Yeah, I guess they can. 
but the show seems to think <laughs> that this character's awesome and these opinions that she holds are reasonable. It's crazy. Anyways, thank you so much for uh, letting me do this. And uh, good luck Good luck to you and yours. Listen to Wes versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator anywhere podcasts can be found. Okay, thanks. Good night. All right, that was Jeremy from Wes versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator. I like what he has to say about it. I like his uh, cadence at the beginning. He was talking <laughs> about how Joel is walking around being the most. Being the most, chewing the scenery. Uh, I forgot that. You know, I remember when we were talking about this, Charles, I wish I had written down sort of more of like what Joel is saying, but he's saying a lot. Like when he just storms into the office, he's going on and on about whatever, the, the stepladder in the middle of the street. And, you know, this is in direct contrast to Marilyn, who is of very few words. You know, that's just kind of their dynamic is Joel yammers on and on as she just has to kind of uh, bear with it. And, and to uh, take a note from Jeremy, it does seem to be from this episode as if Joel is almost maybe smothering Marilyn, I think is uh, the the word Jeremy used. Right, but I think that might actually be a stylistic decision that he decided to chew the scenery right there because he wants to contrast that against Marilyn, who is obviously playing it cool, playing it very, very mellow. So I, I'm not an actor, but I, I would assume that like maybe that's what's going on within Rob Morrow's mind is that, like, all right, well, I need to ham it up. Then we can really see the dichotomy between two characters. Yeah, everything that Joel is doing here uh, only serves to accent the, uh, you know, very, very like almost uh, passive, empty uh, performance by by Marilyn. Yeah, I was a little bit worried about what our guest was going to say about Jane's views. I, <laughs> it, when I say this, I mean, like, I would have been worried if the guest was like, huh, this Jane fella. She's saying some good things. <laughs> Wait, I'm agreeing how? with her. <laughs> well, we talked about this like it was probably... You know, the creators of the show probably knew that their audience would almost be shocked, just as Maggie would be shocked by by Jane, uh, Mrs. Harris, the, the teacher's opinions here. Um, but Jeremy brings up a great point. You know, this show is trying to point out, this episode's trying to point out, you know, we all can have our own uh, opinions. You know, uh, that's the argument of this plot line between Mrs. Harris and Maggie. But, you know, Jeremy points out because of this, the episode almost seems to show that Mrs. Harris's opinion is also a valid opinion. It's like, you know, I think we get the idea that we can all have our own opinions, but I don't think we should necessarily glorify Mrs. Harris's opinion as as valid. <laughs> I think that maybe if uh, it was written today, oh, they yeah. wouldn't <laughs> have used such a controversial uh yeah, I mean, controversial is not even like the right word. I mean, like, if that's not like a blatantly wrong yeah. uh, opinion. I mean, if it was used today, then I think Maggie would still get, you know, the, the ending of that plot line is Maggie saying like, you know, you're right. You know, I'm not going to change your opinion. We all have our own opinions. And that's great. That's what I love about America. Whatever, you know, that that wouldn't be the ending of the plot line if it was uh, if it came out today. Right. Well, actually, now that I'm saying this out loud, there is like a, a similar plot line in The West Wing, which was only written a few more years later, whenever that episode premiered. But it was an episode in which there was a Republican congressman who was gay and he was coming into Josh Lyman, someone who worked in the White House. He's coming into his office to discuss trying to do a bill that would hamper rights for the LGBTQ community. And 
Josh Lyman thought it was really odd that a person who was gay was advocating for a bill that would affect him personally. And they go round for round throughout the entire episode asking him, like, why are you doing this? And then eventually the congressman relents and he says, like, well, being gay isn't all that I am. I'm a conservative because of these beliefs, and I agree with the Republican Party 95% of the time, but I don't agree with them whenever they do this, but I'm still a conservative at heart, and, you know, I still want to vote with them, which is, like, a better way of handling it, I felt, in my opinion, but maybe it's because <laughs> they had Aaron Sorkin backing it up, so, of course, you know, he's he's going to write a good argument, so. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there's a little more, and, and this argument in this episode is um, confined to just, like, like there's not as much screen time here with this plot line. It's I think I think it's really just three scenes in which Maggie and Jane are are on screen at the same time. But what else here? Jeremy was primed a little bit like he got a heads up uh presumably from Eric uh but maybe just from reading or knowing about the show. Uh he he was ready for the uh, Holling and Shelley relationship. <laughs> which uh, I would say, you know, like, you know, he, he, he wasn't uh, too turned off by that, but I will say that it's kind of, um, this episode's relatively tame uh, regarding their relationship. Actually, Charles, before we started recording this, I was like looking through the deleted scenes for this episode. And there is like a bedtime scene with Holling and Shelley. Uh, all that, that, those kind of scenes are always very odd, uncomfortable, uh, usually played for comedy, but then when they aren't, it's just kind of, I don't know, awkward for me to watch at least. Right. Are, are you familiar with the uh, uh, subreddit called Ho Up? Wait, how do you spell that? H-O-L and then U-P. It's no. just without the D of hold. Okay. So, like, I always feel like our uh, our guest would belong in that subreddit whenever they see Holly and Shelly. Uh. They'll be like, oh, like that's a nice daughter that he has there. Wait, Ho Up. What? <laughs> yeah, well, and that's what like that subreddit like usually posts links like that. Yeah, the the uninformed viewer oftentimes will will think that Shelly is his daughter, uh, and then to their surprise, um, I like that Jeremy also pointed out that it's sort of like a Billy Madison plot, which is what you said, Charles, earlier in the episode. All right. Well, thank you again, Jeremy, from the West versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator podcast. We love to have you on, and thank you for guest starring in this episode. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a, kind of a last minute thing. I, we always wanted to get Jeremy on, and uh, he came in like at the eleventh hour. So thanks so much, man, for for watching the episode, giving us your thoughts in, in such a short turnaround. Uh, definitely go listen to their podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Charles, we're going to be back next week for the 16th episode in the fourth season. It's called Ill Wind. What do you think that means? Ill as in I-L-L? Yeah, sick. Oh, wow. That sounds like a like a natural blight, like a plague that's going to spread throughout Sicily. Ooh, spooky. I, you know, I'm just noticing this. The, the air date for this was February 15th, 1993, this uh, next week's episode, so the day after Valentine's Day. Well, okay, I won't spoil anything else, but uh, Charles, I'll see you next week. All right, I'll see you next week, Lee. 
Northern Overexposure podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jeremy for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.